I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, as we continue our study of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask that the Lord will bless the preaching of his word. Oh, Father, as we return to your word now and as we continue in our worship, uh, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would uh, form us, that you would grow us, that you would change us, that you would sanctify us. Oh, Father, uh, help us to see your glory. And as we see that, as we encounter you, as we trust you, I, I pray this morning that we would desire more of you, more of you in our lives, more of you in our future, that our trust in you would grow. And I ask this now in Jesus' most holy name, amen. Our Mexico mission team is in the process of returning uh, back to the States this morning. They had a little bit of a delay, and I look forward to hearing some of their stories from being down in the Yucatan Peninsula. Some of you all have been on that trip. Many of you have, in fact, over the, the decades that our church has been going down there. I love that trip. I love the ministry there. But there are other things about that place that I absolutely adore. And one of those are the things called cenotes. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. A cenote is a giant sinkhole, and they are filled all over the Yucatan Peninsula. No, they're not filled physically. They exist all over the Yucatan Peninsula. It's a sinkhole that exposes groundwater, and there are tens of thousands of them throughout that region where we go. And they make the most perfect place for tourists to come down there and take pictures and sing. The locals are not as fascinated by them as we are, but yet we love them. I love them. They're great. They're huge bodies of water. And because they're sinkholes and limestone, they create this thing, if you will, where they're just a bunch of cliffs that you can jump off of. So again, if you've been there, you remember that the cliffs can be pretty high, but you climb out on those, jump off, and it's a lot of fun. Typically, jumping into a cenote is probably a 10, 15, 20, 20 foot jump. So it's not that tall, but over the years, as a guy who does not like heights, it seems to get taller every year. I find myself being hesitant every time I'm down there for the first jump of the year. In my mind, it goes something like this, man. How do we know there aren't actually sharks in this water? They say they aren't, but how do they really know? Maybe I'm getting old, but it sure looks taller this year than it did last year. And the first time I jump off that cliff, I am hesitant to do so, even though I know how much fun it is. Even though I know how much I enjoy the water, the swimming, the beauty, everything about it. There's a hesitancy inside of me to do that which I know is good. Now, as we get to this third petition of the Lord's Prayer this morning, I think we're going to see a similar type of experience, and that is, if we examine these words and understand what they mean, we will understand there should be a hesitancy to pray these words, even though we know the one who gave them to us is trustworthy. 
As Christians, we know intuitively that we ought to pray. We also know that we get to pray. Prayer is a duty, but it's also an honor and it's a delight. Sometimes we get bogged down in our prayers, I think, simply because we don't know how to do it. And that's why we have these very simple and clear guidelines from our master. Uh, And what we're going to see this morning is it's a how-to is not really the problem. The issue is our hearts, and that is, do we want to pray as the Lord has instructed us to pray? As was said over these last few weeks, there are six different requests, six different petitions found in the Lord's Prayer. The first three deal with our understanding of who God is. The second set of three deal with what we are to pray for ourselves. And that is a very logical thing. If we understand God rightly, then we will understand how to pray for ourselves rightly. Thus, we pray that God will enable our hearts to honor him, that is to hallow him, to recognize him as holy and great in his majesty. And then when we recognize that, then we want his power to come, his kingdom to come, his kingdom to come and invade our lives, our hearts, our homes, our schools, our businesses, our neighborhoods, our nation. And that is the second petition that Will preached a couple of weeks ago, for thy kingdom to come. And we understand that to mean that, yes, his kingdom has come in the past, but it's coming currently. We're seeing the Lord do things even now. And someday his kingdom will come in its fullness in the future. But again, remember, the only person who would ever dare pray this prayer is someone who truly believes in our heavenly father loves us and that he's good and you can trust him completely. Otherwise... This prayer is way too dangerous because as we'll see this morning, if your heart has been changed and you want his kingdom, then that means you now desire what comes with his kingdom. And that is his will, his holy, perfect will. This morning we get the attachment of God's perfect kingdom and that is his perfect will. And the ongoing question I'm gonna ask this morning is, is that what you want Do you truly want God's will? I'm going to look at this in three parts this morning by asking three different questions. First, very simply, what is God's will? Secondly, why is God's will so hard to accept? And then lastly, why we can trust God's will. So what is his will? Why is it hard to accept? And then lastly, why can we actually trust him? My prayer for us this week and again this morning is that God may bend our hearts in such a way that we want God to have his way in every single detail of our life. So first, what is God's will? This is the simple question. If you're going to pray for it, then we really need to know what it is. And honestly, it's not that hard to explain But as we're going to see throughout the sermon is this is a spiritual challenge to believe and accept that it's good. But first, an explanation and a description of his will. When we we hear the word will in this context, it refers to someone's agenda, someone's desire, someone's purpose. It's It's what someone is about, what is in their heart. It's what's in their DNA. It's their determination to achieve and accomplish what's inside of them. So for God's will, as we pray for this, then it's obviously we're asking, what is God about? What is his agenda? 
What is his desire for your life? What is his desire for the world? What is his plan? What is his intent, his goal, his hope? A more technical definition comes from John Calvin. It sounds like this. God's will is when God executes the secret counsel of his providence. Doesn't that sound like something John Calvin might have said? When God executes the secret counsel of his providence. That is, God's will is that which happens throughout history with his intended purposes coming to bear. I like to think of God's will, rather just a will, being realized with that of a football team when they are winning very easily. Perhaps even like the Bengals today. Oftentimes, in a lopsided football game, the TV commentators will say something like this. The Bengals are just imposing their will against the Chiefs. What does that mean? They are doing what they want to do. They are doing their agenda and it's happening before our eyes. That's what our will is. It's the outworking of what someone wants. The actualization of an inner desire. The expression tangibly of one's agenda. So that begs the question, of course, what does God want? If we're going to pray for that, if we're going to ask for that, we really need to ask, what is it God is about? Because if we disagree with that, then again, this is a dangerous prayer. Thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven basically asks this question, what are God's intentions? I love Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Go and meditate on it later today. It's a great passage for us to consider the reality that when God's will is done, he describes his will as good and pleasing and perfect. That's what his will is. His agenda is good. His agenda is pleasing. His agenda is perfect. That's when his agenda is received and actualized, we know that it's good because he's good. He's pleasing because he is pleasing. It's perfect because he is perfect. That's the result. But the secret to understand this passage is not that mysterious. Look back at verse 10 and notice what the instructions here say for us. Do you see it? God's will is connected to one thing and that is the location of where Jesus is today. That is, he's in heaven. The answer to the question is, what is God's will? Is that which is happening in heaven today? Do you see that? Whatever's going on in heaven now, that's what God wants to happen here on earth now. What Jesus is doing today in heaven is what he cares about happening on earth today here. We don't need to overthink this, nor has this left our imagination. Jesus is instructing us to make our lives be about that which he is currently involved in doing in heaven. That is his will. That is the prayer. That is the desire. The will of God is that we trust our Heavenly Father's love so much that we now want heaven to come and be our reality here on earth. That is, Jesus, come with your kingdom and set up your shop right here, right now. It does beg the question, of course, what is going on then in heaven now? And fortunately, we don't have to make that up. Rather, Scripture is complete with details. In Revelation chapter 4, 
we see that the Lord Jesus is on his throne and the heavenly beings are all around him. That they are worshiping him, saying that he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. In Revelation 20 and 21, when the fullness of time has come and the kingdom is here, here's what you see inside of heaven. There's no more Satan. There are no more lies. There's no more deceit. No evil. No sin. No abuse. No abusers. No crime. No hate. No abandonment. Doesn't that sound like a kingdom we want? The easiest way to determine what God's will is in a particular setting for you is to ask, does this match heaven? Does it fit heaven and God's holiness? Because God's will on earth matches where he is today. And what is going on in heaven right now is simply this. Jesus is worshiped, and when he's worshiped, he's obeyed. That's it. The will of God is that we obey Jesus. So bringing this down to our level, God's will on this earth is everything that Jesus' life and ministry was and is about. Church, as I wrestled and prayed about this this week, I really wrestled with the reality that this is not that complicated. We have God's word. We just did a series on uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is the ethic of God. The question is, do you really want this? Do you really trust that Jesus and his ways are the most pleasing, perfect ways that exist? You know, it's almost tax time. I know everyone is excited about that and looking forward to it. But as I was thinking about the sermon and thinking about tax time, I did have this thought. Here's what I know at least for my taxes, for our taxes. This is not a subjective exercise. It's not about my opinion. The government does not ask my opinion. Rather, there are a lot of facts that go inside of little bitty boxes. And the numbers, at least from the government perspective, don't lie. They are what they are. It's just true. The ethic of God's will is revealed in his word. It's who he is. We can discover it because he has given it to us. The harder question is, do you want it? God's will is not for us to make up or piece together. It's his facts. It's who he is. It's about him. It's about his love. It's about his law. It's about his ways. The church, it's good because it's him. So first we see that is God's will. It's what's being done in heaven right now. But secondly, why is this hard to pray? And I hope you see this morning and will be honest This is a hard prayer. It's short, but it is filled with a lot of meaning. If it's not hard for you, I wonder if you actually are grasping what this prayer implies. You see, all of us were born with our own will. We came into this world with a will that was focused upon ourselves. We have one, and our will prefers our own plan, our own agenda, We aren't exactly looking to give up our agenda to someone else. Theologians often describe our wills as both stubborn and selfish. Doesn't that sound about right, about who we are? When sin came into the world in Genesis chapter 3, 
Each of us were born with a proclivity to not only prefer our own will, but we're completely opposed to anyone else having control over the details of our lives other than us. Not only do we not want God to have his way, we don't want anybody else to have their way. Not coaches, not teachers, not parents, not professors, not students, not police, not politicians. Nobody. Our preference is ourself. It is to promote or protect our own desires. That's who we are. That's our nature. That's who we were until the Lord invaded our lives and his spirit came to live inside of us. Listen again to Romans Hear this from Romans chapter 1. Here's what scripture says about our hearts apart from Christ. It says, there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You see, asking for God's will to come upon our hearts and lives requires the miracle of God's invasion of his kingdom coming Apart from Jesus invading our hearts and turning us, the last thing that we would ever do is to desire that our hearts would be given to another. There's a famous poem written in the early 20th century and it smacks of the stubborn self-will of mankind. William Ernest Henley wrote Invictus as he fought against the pain of tuberculosis. Many of you are familiar with these words, but he said... I'm the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. Doesn't our culture love that? Even our culture, I think, finds inspiration from these words. Please see this morning. Thy will being done on earth as it is in heaven is the exact opposite of those words. You see, here is what happens when God comes to us and invades our hearts. When God, by the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, invades us, His Spirit transforms us, our heart in such a way that we now have a whole new set of desires put into our heart from God Himself. The passage that that Chuck just read to us this morning from Psalm 37, verse 4 is perhaps my all-time favorite passage in the Bible. And it's the reality that when the kingdom of Jesus comes upon someone, that person has a change of desires. That God puts the desires there. So now not only do we have selfish desires, but now we have the capacity to have God's desires. We now have the ability to want what he wants. But in our residue of sin, there is a battle in our heart. So again, I ask you this morning, Christian, you who possess a new heart, And you who also have this residue of sin in your life, do you want what God wants in your life? I cannot answer that for you. But understand, this prayer states that we give up our will to Jesus. Let's go back to the Bengals illustration. If the chiefs could accept this prayer, then you see they would surrender before the game. They would say, Bengals, you are the higher power. We surrender to you and we want your ways to come upon us. Now, I get, that's silly, that's not gonna happen. But that's what's true in our lives. 
when your eyes are open to see the Father and his love, we gladly want him to come, to conquer, to take over, to establish, and his ways be our passion because we know that he is good. See, what's hard about this is simply this. Do you trust the love of your heavenly father in such a way you want his purposes in every part of your life? Do you trust what he'll do? Do you trust his agenda? Do you trust his plan? I had an Old Testament professor back in my seminary days, uh, Richard Pratt. Some of you are familiar with his work. But he said about this phrase, this prayer, of your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. He said this is the thesis statement of the entire Bible. That it's all right here. This is what scripture is about. A kingdom coming from heaven to this earth and God's world being set up here so that earth recognizes heaven. The heartbeat of this is, oh Lord, I want to want everything that you want. With my time, with my children, with retirement, with money, with future, with work, with family, I want you to invade and have it all and set up your shop here. If you would dare pray this prayer, if the Lord gives you the courage to pray this prayer and truly want his will to be done, let me offer at least two things I think will happen in your life. Two points of application. If you truly want God's will first, you know what will happen? You will fall in love with his word because you'll be dependent upon it. You will seek the scriptures. You will go to his word. You will meditate upon the Psalms. You will read about the covenants. You will read of who you are in Christ throughout the New Testament. He discloses what he's about primarily in your Bibles. So read them, meditate, memorize, listen. God's spirit and God's word always work together. As you pray for his will, you will hear from him in your Bibles and he will point you to Jesus. The Father, by his spirit, will lead you again and again and again. Church, may we be people who love his word. But then secondly, in addition to loving scripture, here's what I think will happen. Be prepared for God to make changes in your life. That is how this works, you know. You didn't really think you were going to surrender your will to a greater king and it wouldn't involve some change in your life. Call it sanctification, call it whatever you want to call it. But when you give up your will and it's replaced by Jesus' perfect will, he's going to do things in your life differently than you had done them previously. That's how it happens. And that is good. Because he is conforming you to his good and his pleasing and his perfect ways. God will change us. God will make us. God will conform us. God will transform us. In our Sunday school classes this morning, uh, perhaps your children will will come home and talk about this, but in our class, it's the story of Exodus and how Moses led the people out of Egypt. And it's fascinating to go back and look at this in chapter 14. He was taking them into the promised land. It was about a two-week journey for them to go into the promised land. But God had a different plan. He decided to take them, quote, through the wilderness first, where it took 40 years to get there. Doesn't that sound like something the Lord might do in our lives? 
You see, he had to do things in the Israelites to grow their faith. He had to teach them. He had to train them. He had to disrupt them. He had to lead them. He had to teach them. He had to allow suffering. Otherwise, their faith would not have been in him. And all the while, he had a good, pleasing, and perfect plan. That's why this is hard. Is God disrupting your life? Good. Is Jesus bending your plans to change them? Be glad. It means he's at work. It means he's conforming you. It's proof that his will is coming. He is doing that because he loves you. He is doing that because his plans for you are better than your own plans. So we've seen what the Lord's will is. We've seen why it's hard. Lastly, consider why you can trust him with your future. Why is he trustworthy this morning? Let me close with this and it will lead us directly to the communion table. Why can you trust the Lord Jesus to take control of your life and lead you in good ways? It's because we've seen how Jesus responded in his moment of crisis and how he accepted his father's will above his own. The night of Jesus' crucifixion as he awaited the terror which would come upon him in a few short hours. As blood came from his pores, even before the beatings or the nails. As he was abandoned by his closest friends. And as he chose not to have a legion of angels come and rescue him. And as he suffered, he prayed for one thing. And church, you know exactly what it was. Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. And our heavenly Father's will was to crush him. That was his will, that Jesus would not be spared, that Jesus would receive punishment beyond what we could imagine, so that we would not. Can you trust Jesus to lead you in your life? Yes, is our cry. Why? Because of what he has done. You can trust the one who is in heaven, who went there for you in his glorified body, who went first and is returning for you. Your Lord in heaven who died for you is alive today and he is praying for you. He is with you as you journey through this wilderness. What is his will? His will is for you to trust him because you know he's good. So church, let's not be hesitant. Let's pray for his will to be done in our life. Let's pray that we will trust him and have hearts filled with anticipation of all that he will do. Now let me pray and we will transition into praying as Jesus taught us to pray. Father, as we consider these words and we consider the reality that calling upon you and trusting you and seeking your will, Lord, it is a total transformation of our lives. Father, I pray that by your grace, you would give us the ability to want what you want us to have. Give us the ability to hunger and thirst for you and for your kingdom and your righteousness. Help us to see your beauty afresh this morning. And now, oh God, we pray as your son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.